Hello and welcome to another episode of What's Normal with Gabriel Sanders. Hello, I am Gabriel Sanders, and I want to thank you so much for being here. This episode is titled, Everything is Connected. And my guest on this episode is Dr. Betty J. Kovacs. Betty Kovacs earned her doctorate from the University of California, Irvine, in comparative literature and theory of symbolic mythic language. She taught literature, writing, and symbolic mythic language for 25 years. She served many years as chair and program chair on the board of directors of the Young Society of Claremont in California and sits on the academic advisory board of Forever Family Foundation. Dr. Kovacs is author of Merchants of Light, The Consciousness That Is Changing the World, winner of the Nautilus Silver Book Award and the Scientific and Medical Network 2019 Book Prize. She has also written The Miracle of Death, There Is Nothing But Life. And her website is the Camlack Center, camlack.com, K-A-M-L-A-K.com. And you'll find that link on the description page of the episode. So everything is connected. Do you believe in that? Do you believe that the air we breathe is the same air that our ancestors breathed? That the water we drink and use is made up of the same molecules that the dinosaurs drank and bathed in? The molecules around us and in us and floating through the cosmos are all shared? That someone's actions in another country or of another time can affect your normal today? Or how about our connection to what's beyond our physical reach? The spirits of those who have passed. Are our bodies just shells for our beings to borrow before our souls move on to another plane or, or somewhere or something else? What's the bigger picture? What is bigger than us? How are we all just like grains of sand moving around on the beach and our earth is just like a little molecule in a vast vacuum of millions of solar systems. We're, we're just but a little speck. So these are big ideas and big questions that I know I ask and we get into some of these things in a talk. Do you ask yourself these questions? Has there ever been a moment when you stop yourself to ask why or how? Just saying this out loud to you makes me take a pause to consider everything, that everything is connected. That's pretty much what quantum physics is, and we get into that. And, and just saying that puts a weight of, uh, holy shit, what's the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? when all we see in our reality is just this, this square inch of reality, as Dr. Betty Kovacs has said. There's a lot we dig into our talk, and not only does Dr. Betty Kovacs, professor, author, speaker, share Western culture's lost spiritual history of altered states of consciousness and what that means for us today, we also get into the history of how religion has affected the conscious mind, how Western culture changed the dominant female as a symbol of God into male, Western civilization and the church. According to Dr. Kovacs' studies, the church had done away with any heart-based knowledge and meditation and only stuck with a rational brain thinking and looked at people as just matter. Just matter. How about that? That's, I, I think that's pretty depressing. 
The Renaissance, destroyed by the church. Creativity, we're just matter. We're just things living on this earth. But I always thought, and I bring it up, that we are human beings, so we're being before we are human, right? So what? But what happens to our soul once we die? And do we become another thing after this? Who knows? Do you believe in God or a God, or is there a God inside of you? Do you go outward or inward? How does that affect your current situation, your normal? Are you tuning into a spiritual world or religious world? Are you open to the ideas around you, or are you stuck in a one, you know, kind of single lane type of thinking? Do you allow yourself to be open to the energies outside of yourself? Dr. Kovacs also mentions、uh, the megalithic period, where humans experienced the rhythms of nature. But those philosophies were wiped out, and essentially, how our current situation of war, the pandemic, disease, all relates to the decay of the universal consciousness of people on the earth. Like, why war? Adults have one power. Because of power and control of people, that leads to violence and war. And how do we, as a people, how can we have the mindset to find a way to heal that part of humanity, all as one? How can we, as a people, do that? And how does this all connect to our current pandemic situation and you know, and disease, and viruses? You know who takes us all in, and I notice this very much so as a parent. Our children, our children take us all in, and we are all born into a, a structure, a society. What it is goes. If that's with religion, without religion, whatever that is presented to them, that's all they know. My children just allow the pandemic to be part of the normal. They called it the sickness. They wore their masks. It is what it is. Other children are born into war, or they grow up in you know political family, for better or worse. My wife and I talk about politics openly with our kids. But some politics destroy families, or they, you know, move the family's growth in different directions, or maybe are never discussed at the dinner table. Maybe that's a rule of your family. How did this last year of 2020、uh, connect with your family normal? Talking about the insurrection of the Capitol and and、uh, the whole election shenanigans. Politics can, you know, destroy families or relationships. But、um, I'm going on a tangent here. There is something essentially bigger than us, right? Do you believe that? It's not religion. Religion's not bigger than us. Or do you feel that way? It's not who makes a lot of money. It's not egos. Egos are inflated. But we are all still human beings. So it's not our belief system. It's life itself. Life itself is big, bigger than us. We're just Living our time on Earth, and then we die. Then what happens? What happens after? We we are in a body. Our soul is in a body, and who knows where our soul is before we die or after we die? One of my daughters, our old my oldest daughter,、uh, asked my wife, Carrie, how did the first woman get here? Now she's almost seven. That's a big question. How did the first woman get here? 
That's a big thought for a little person. And what do we say that? No, it wasn't the the、uh, the first. There was a man first, and then he took his rib out, and then he grew a woman. Yeah, no, ah, no. Yeah, there's something there's something else going on, right? Who knows what exactly? How humans became to be in evolution, but it's not a rib. Sorry to say, folks, not a rib. But our children are basically born into a world, right, run by adults, and adults say what goes, and their actions cause their life's journey. Our children have to deal with and react to adults' actions, positive or negative, and it's the negative. That has the great impact that can destroy their lives, like war, violence, abuse, not only treatment of other human beings, but animals too. In Florida, for example, we're surrounded by wildlife: bunnies, turtles, large birds called osprey, egrets, herons, sandhill cranes, bald eagles. We see bald eagles every day. Some of these animals, like turtles and bunnies, often need to cross the street, including sandhill cranes. But sandhill cranes are protected by the state. It's actually a felony if you kill or maim one with your car, because people drive fast and drive like assholes. Typically, you find people get out of their cars, stop traffic, and help these animals get across the street safely. I do this. My wife does this. We care about animals. We teach and show our children that we care for wildlife and show how to respect animals. It's our heart consciousness. But there are people out there who drive like assholes and don't see the animals, or who kill animals just for the sake of killing, for power, for control, for their own sick play. Adults hit. And drive over turtles and rabbits for fun. Then their children witness this and think it's okay. So then they turn and go ahead and smash turtles' shells with bats, or are taught to shoot squirrels or frogs for fun. And that is the horrible decay of human heart consciousness. I once drove over a squirrel and I was deeply saddened by it. It was an accident. I soon went back to that area, and the and the squirrel was gone. It was probably scooped up by a vulture. But I was just thankful that my wife and kids were not there to witness that. But the point is, is that there's hatred and evil in this world, and violence because of power and control. And what's all the basis of the power and control? Where does all that come from? What's the connection to that? My wife Carrie posted on Facebook this really awesome、uh, photo of a quote by Robert R. McCammon. Robert R. McCammon is a、uh, publisher. He's an American novelist. He wrote bestsellers: The Wolf's Hour, Stinger, Swan Song,、A、Boy's Life,、uh, and so he wrote this quote: "We all start." Out, knowing magic, we are born with whirlwinds, forest fires, and comets inside us. We are born able to sing to birds and read the clouds and see our destiny in grains of sand.
But then we get the magic educated right out of our souls. We get it churched out, spanked out, washed out, and combed out. We get put on the street in narrow path and told to be responsible, told to act our age, told to grow up for God's sake. And you know why we're told that? Because the people doing the telling were afraid of our wildness and youth. And because the magic we knew made them ashamed and sad of what they'd allowed to wither in themselves. That's Robert R. McCammon. It's a lot to think about. It's kind of like my theory, very close to my theory of a magic sandbox. This is a term that I created some years ago when I was trying out improv. I was just on a stage and playing and creating characters. And I just remember when I was a kid, I did the same thing. Created characters. Created my own magic. You know, that's what you do when you're a kid. You create stories. You make up stories. You play. You build castles in the sandbox. And then you wipe away the sand. And you, and you bring in other friends. And you play in the sandbox. And you make up rules to involve other people. And, and you create. And you live in your own creative world. And then what happens when you become an adult? What happens to that magic sandbox? So, um... What we do and say in our lives matters because everything is connected. Everything is connected. And about connections, the amazing connections of the three deaths of uh, the closest family members to Dr. Betty Kovacs is phenomenal. Uh, I will let her tell you the stories and you can read her books, The Merchants of Light and The Miracle of Death as well. And there are links available for you. But have you ever predicted someone's death have you ever been visited by a loved one? Have you ever had an out-of-body experience? Dr. Kovacs shares the unbelievable connections between the deaths of her mother, her husband, and her son. Truly incredible, but I won't ruin it for you. But let's just say there are many forces at play here. Dr. Kovacs and I actually had our talk a few months ago before I got vaccinated. I've gotten both shots since then. I got Moderna. We all have been living through this pandemic. We're all connected living through this pandemic. And now all of our conversations about who got vaccinated and what company we used and what our reactions or our side effects were like. I got Moderna. So what did you get? You get Pfizer, you get Johnson & Johnson, you get the single shot. And how did you react? Was your arm sore? Did you get headaches, fever? Oh, your brother got Moderna too? Did he need to be in bed for two days to get headaches like I did? Oh, you got Johnson & Johnson? You're the only one that I know who got that. Hmm, well, interesting. We have small talk over our vaccinations and connect and feel connected with these talks. That's part of our everyday normal chit-chat. Small talk. We are connected by the situation that nature or the byproducts of science or pseudoscience have put us in. Not just as a nation, but as the entire world. We're all having these same conversations and living in these same uh, limitations, or maybe not now with these uh, new mask mandates, but we've been all living these shared experiences. The people of the earth were poisoned by something, and it's the destruction, the, the decay of the heart consciousness, as Dr. Kovacs puts it. So, after all is said and done, what is our purpose in life. Why are we all here? What is our intention? Is the path laid out for us? Are we creating our own path? How is everything connected? 
Yeah, th this is a very heady discussion, and I hope you dig it as much as I did. You may find more information about Dr. Betty Kovacs and her mission and links to her books on the Kamlak Center's website. Again, that's K-A-M-L-A-K.com. You will find that link and all the social media links for What's Normal on the description page of the episode. And please subscribe and leave a review. So dance life in snake boots, live each moment fully, then let it go. Here is Dr. Betty J. Kovacs in this episode, aptly titled, Everything is Connected. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. Hello, Dr. Betty Kovacs. Thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> I've read your books. Uh, I've watched a video. So your background, you're a professor, author, speaker. You study Western cultures, lost spiritual history of altered states of consciousness and what this means for us today. You study mythology and sy symbolic languages. Um, so amazing what you know, what you've what you've uh, what you learned and what you write about. There's so many things I want to talk about. Good. And hopefully there's some kind of connectivity between them all. <laughs> we'll find it. We'll find it. We'll find it. I'd like to begin with um, just going over what you've written. You've written two books, Miracle of Death and Merchants of Light. Yeah. And also there was a video uh, and a philosophy talk about the frequency of love in a dying world. Let's talk about that first, the frequency of okay. love in a dying world, because we are still living in a pandemic um, the past year was was really rough. We're kind of slowly getting out of it. Your thought of the frequency of love in a dying world and how we as a Western culture has lost the connection and also the knowledge of the universal mind. And we're kind of destroying ourselves through violence and drugs to fill the void of that connection that we lost to Mother Earth, to universal mind, to our social consciousness. How does that all play in with? if there is a connection to the COVID pandemic and how we handled the pandemic, is there a connection? Well, I think, first of all, there's a connection in the way we have not related to nature, mm -hmm. that our relationship with nature has been very destructive. Mm -hmm. So uh, there is bound to be uh, viruses that come and go, but we are told constantly there, there's going to be another one, there are going to be more. Well, there could be, you know, as the permafrost melts mm -hmm. and uh, bacteria and viruses, I guess, that are were frozen or released, that could be. But I think that the first relationship would be how do we relate to the earth? And that has been a serious problem for, for over 2,000 years. Uh, our ancestors, if I could go back just for a minute and talk about our ancestors, they intuitively knew that the laws of nature are the same laws of the human psyche, or they wouldn't have called it psyche, but of the human being. So the most important thing would be for us to know the laws of nature and live by those laws. And in the megalithic period, which was several thousand 
years before Christ, after the cave cultures, these big megalithic structures were made in such a way that the human being could experience the rhythms of nature. You know, the equinoxes, the solstices, and, and the very beingness of nature. And our ancestors saw the individual as the mediator between the energies of the earth and ourselves and the cosmos. And in this way, we stayed in harmony with nature, of which we are a very important part. Mm -hmm. So I think that that would be one of the most important things that we have to look at in relation to the, the pandemic. Also, I think that our modes of research and in, uh, in the, there's a very good possibility that this was from the lab and that it was gain of function research, which was creating a kind of super virus. And so that's also, I think we need to, to first start with the way we relate to nature and that would affect the way we do research and what we do with elements of nature. So uh, yes, I think that uh, that's a beginning, <laughs> beginning to understand it at least. Do you feel that where we're going as a Western society, that it's going to, I guess, crash or there's, a, a, there's a, going to be an end point because we're, we lost the connection to universal mind and, and health and we're destroying ourselves and there's violence. Do you think it's just going to keep getting worse is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, there's a possibility of that. Yeah. Uh, but there is also another possibility, and that is that we are awakening to uh, a much deeper a way of living mm. uh, in the world, a much vaster kind of consciousness. And, you know, these are the questions I had. And the reason I think that I, I did the research is that uh, I wanted to know, how did we get here? And it's really clear how we got here, because we began to, to diverge, you might say, from uh, a shaman, mystic, and even scientific way of life. What I discovered is that our, our ancestors really very uh, early on, even in the cave cultures, they intuited and they learned how to trigger the mind to experience a vaster kind of consciousness. I call it universal consciousness mm -hmm. because we are all part of that. And others have talked about that, that uh, our ordinary everyday consciousness is, uh, is created by a valve, you might say. It's a, I like the metaphor anyway. It's like a valve that limits this vast consciousness because we couldn't do what you and I are doing now or, or go to the store or cook dinner or have a profession. So there is a valve that allows us to have the limited consciousness for everyday life. But our ancestors learned about 40,000 BCE all around the world, shamanism developed, and they had learned how to trigger that valve to open so that we could experience who we really are and that uh, what our relationship with nature really can be. So I think that, that there were many shaman mystic cultures, as I talk about, in Merchants of Light. Mm -hmm. But then there came a time when uh, people didn't pay much attention to that or they uh, wanted power over. I think when we don't develop that relationship and know what we really are, that we're already this vast consciousness, when that gets plugged up and blocked, I think we begin to want to have control over others. We want to have power. This vast consciousness gives us a kind of power, but if we don't 
experience that, many of us want to have power over others. You know, in the Nag Hammadi texts that were discovered uh, after World War II, and these are texts that were used uh, in the early uh, years of Christianity, uh, and they were very different from what the Bible talks about, because in these Nag Hammadi texts, the Jesus of that text says, I didn't come to save you. I came to remind you of who you are. Oh, wow. And isn't that good? Mm -hmm. And if if you will bring forth what is within you, it will save you. But if you do not bring forth what is within you, it will destroy you. And I think that when we don't experience who we are, that we do crazy things. You know, we mm -hmm. begin to want to have, it's like an alcoholic uh, mm -hmm. that they can't control their own lives. And there is that need to control others very often, you know? Right, right. So I think we're in the same boat if we don't bring forth what is within us, which is our experience of universal consciousness. And so uh, about 621 BCE, uh, the first temple uh, tradition, first temple in Judaism, uh, it's now known by the scholar Margaret Barker, that that was a shaman mystic tradition. So they did want to experience the divine, which is in all of us. We are all divine, immortal, and creative. But that, by those who didn't experience it, they don't want us to know that. So, mm -hmm. but so that was the first temple tradition. We didn't even know that until her research. And what happened was that at 621 BCE, there, were a group of, there was a group of people, the Deuteronomists, who said, oh, we have found a different text in the temple. And they got rid of the shamanic mystic tradition. And both the female and the male in that earlier tradition created the universe together. It wasn't just a male god, obviously. It was male and female <laughs> created together. And so the female has almost always been a symbol of the heart of our soul consciousness, heart consciousness. And she's also nature. She's the creatrix and so on. So they got rid of all of the images of her, got rid of the entire tradition throughout the wisdom literature that talked about our being a part of wisdom. And the female is also a symbol of wisdom. That's what she was actually called, Sophia or wisdom. So then a whole different tradition began. And uh, there was, uh, according to Margaret Barker, and she has very good evidence for this, that the Jews tried to recreate that shaman mystic tradition in the Jesus tradition, but it was taken over. Although there's a uh, period of time in which people talked about the hidden tradition that Jesus taught, which would have been to discover who we are and to experience that vastness. So that was lost. But when the Roman church came along in the end of the fourth century AD, then they uh, took the myth, but they distorted it. And instead of Jesus being the symbol of who we are, they made us follow him. We are to follow the Christ, to obey the church and follow the Christ. Whereas in the Nagamati text, that Jesus said, no, you're not to follow me. You are to become me. Do not follow the Christ, become the Christ. And people who had those texts were threatened that if they kept them, they would destroy, be destroyed by the church. So they buried them. And then after World War II, we found them. <laughs> so I think that, you know, these traditions existed in many places, the shaman mystic tradition, that's intuitively the 
the right direction, the most natural direction to go in. But then, uh, especially in Western culture, after the power of the church, you could not go that way and let anyone know it. It had to be the doctrine of the church and following the laws of the church or the doctrine of the church. So it's only in the last century that we discovered how we had gone wrong and mm -hmm. how this losing a sense of who we are uh, causes all kinds of uh, mental disease, you might say, and a, a drive for power, tremendous uh, drive for power and fanaticism and fundamentalism and, and mental illness, psychosis. <laughs> Becoming the Christ and now following the Christ. You talk about, is that, um, as some people say, the Christ within, the God within us? Yes. Instead of being a follower, because once you become a follower, you're doing everything you can to appease that's right. The follower, instead of going inside and looking for your own truth. That's precisely what it is. In shamanism, which is the tradition of going inward and experiencing uh, your own beingness, that we know then, we know. That's what the church called gnosis and totally condemned it. But yes, it's going inward and knowing who we are mm. and not following what we are told to do. We will know from our own experience. When we have to project that divinity outside ourselves, then we can't experience it. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing is to experience it. And our ancestors knew that's the most natural thing in the world intuitively, that you want to experience it, not hear about how someone else had experienced it and then follow that. So it's following a doctrine. The, the doctrine becomes the norm for our behavior rather than going within and truly getting in touch with our creativity because our ancestors were very clear about it. We are all divine and we are creative and we are immortal. They knew that because they had gone within and they had experienced it. So what happened to the image of the deity uh, around uh, circa uh, 2000 BC when it became feminine to masculine? Why did that happen? Why did they get rid of all the feminine symbols and switch over? Okay, that would be about 621 BCE. 621, 621 BCE. when the Deuteronomist did that. Well, it would be a shifting from inner experience to outer doctrine. Mm. And why would it be somehow or other? I, I think with, with the Jewish people, it could have been that they wanted, that leaders wanted control so mm. that they could perhaps imagine they could be safer, they could remain as a group and survive. It might have been for those reasons. But to get rid of the feminine meant that we get rid of inner experience. Mm. She is the heart, consciousness, the inner experience of who we are, and nature, nature's laws. So to get rid of her would be to get rid of going inward and then having laws, because after that, it was the law that we had to follow in Judaism, then became the same with the Roman church mm. later. I just found that that whole concept really odd in, in this time, in the, uh, from what I know, because as soon as I became a dad, I have two girls, and studying uh, birth and birth practices and just the, the capability of a female, the connection to the earth, <laughs> the mother earth, the creation of life, feeding of life. Mm -hmm. The woman is a, a life creator and such a profound being of what a female can do, but now yet in the history, we're disconnecting, we're removing the female. The female is a lot more connected to the earth, I feel, because it's Mother Earth than a man, I feel. 
The life is created inside the female body, feeds the child. The child comes out and still is fed by breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And then there's, of course, the child is born within the, the mother for nine to 10 months. Then there's still a connection, what's called the fourth trimester, to be held and loved and fed. The mother is the earth. And yet, <laughs> and yet we've kind of, into, in the history, we've kind of pushed her aside and made it the masculine. The God is a he. And we've disconnected ourselves to that innate connection to um, the universe, I could say. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, well, you know, what you've just described, I mean, you allowed yourself to experience the reality of that. And many men don't seem to, you know, they might be around, but often they don't really take in that incredible uh, miracle mm -hmm. of even to become pregnant and then to carry the child. And all that you have described is what our ancestors knew. And they saw it as the earth. She is the earth and the miracle of life and all the, the rules, all of the laws of nature work within both of male and female. But we see it in this phenomenal way with birthing a child. And uh, there's a was a whole period in our history of thousands of years when the imagery of the female dominated because she was the earth in this miracle of life and male and female participated in it. So yes, and I think of my own pregnancy, my own giving birth, my own experience of the miracles of life, mm. how incredible. And then to have this child, you know, is just, and I think if we allowed ourselves to do what you did experience, that we would look at life and nature and ourselves in a much more miraculous way. And it would open, that opens the heart. And our ancestors knew that the heart is a part of the brain. And we now know that through uh, scientific research, that there's more information from the heart to the brain than the brain gives the heart. And in heart math, they've done wonderful mm -hmm. studies. But if we like even sit down and be quiet and think and allow ourselves to experience breathing from the heart, you know, the end, imagine it coming into the heart and out of the heart, it helps us to focus there. But that's when we stop following outer rules and start listening to the laws of nature and our own nature and the miracle that we're part of, as you've just described it. It is a miracle. And you, you mentioned heart math, and I want to bring that up. When you speak about heart math, which is the, the heart's magnetic field is 100 times stronger than the brain. It gives more info, like you said, to the brain than vice versa. So in that sense, when people meditate, you're letting go of the thinking brain, the monkey brain. You're letting go of that, and you're going into the heart. It's the heart that gives us life. It's not the brain. I mean, well, yes, I mean, technically it does, mm -hmm. but uh, you need the heart to pump the blood, and you connect to the heart. But it's a complete opposite to the saying, I think, therefore I am. If you're not thinking, then you <laughs> find the silence, and you connect to the heart. Does that make sense? Well, that's, yeah, that's beautifully said. Um, I think that all of the brain components are important. And if we imagine the energy flowing up the spine, the reptilian brain, into the mammalian brains and into the right brain, which is a symbolic brain, that's the language of the right brain, and it feeds the left brain, which is 
the logical, rational mind. And we make a big mistake when we think that these symbols are not logical because it feeds what we call a reflective, rational, conceptual brain. And it couldn't be logical if the feeding where the right brain is giving it is irrational. It has a poetic logic as a way of looking at it. So we have a poetic, symbolic logic, and then a conceptual, rational logic. And then we have the prefrontal lobes, and it flows through all of this down into the heart. And if we have that circular flowing, then I think we're at the fullest. But there are certain parts of the brain that are quiet in certain meditation mm. so that so that we can feel. It's been a deep knowledge of, of the past to know that feeling is a way of knowing and feeling comes from the heart. And, you know, in our culture, it was kind of a joke. We don't care what you feel. Just tell me the facts. You right. know, that crazy. Right. But that has been Western culture. It's completely negated the heart. It's just an organ to pump blood. And we haven't realized that its other aspect is that it opens, it opens the consciousness to that vast universal consciousness that we are. So by cutting ourselves off from that, we've cut ourselves off from that feeling, intuitive, loving energy. And now, do you believe in the chakras and how the chakra of the mind connects to the, the universe and the chakra of our base connects to the earth? Do you believe in that flow of energy and, and the heat of the Kundalini snake? Do you believe in all that energy that flows through the body? You know, there's just so much evidence that we don't even need to believe it. We can know it, you know, mm. because there's so many people who have experienced this awakening kundalini energy flowing through all the chakras and connecting, you know, with that cosmic energy. You know, that's who we are. We're cosmic beings. And so mm. we have the ability to take in these earth energies all the way up and connect with the cosmic energies. That's who we are. We're made that way. We need to remember it so that we can practice it, you know? Yeah. I'm a former yoga teacher. I went through a, like a very spiritual experience at the school and learned Sanskrit. And Oh my goodness, look at you. Gosh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I forgot all the Sanskrit, but... <laughs> I Hard to hold on. Yeah, yeah. I and I wound up because I wound up teaching in places that wasn't allowed. You weren't allowed to really say Sanskrit. When you work at corporate gyms and commercial gyms, they don't they don't even want you to say Om. So I see this. This is one of the problems. Right. Once we get away from that, then we start getting rules made by people who don't know who they are, right. and we're supposed to abide by it. And I think we have to resist that. You studied symbolic languages. You. Study mythology, professor, author, speaker, PhD. I would love to go back, if you don't mind, because I feel that the title of my podcast is What's Normal? And I feel that finding our normal can begin way back from when we were born or a child, five years old. There's something that happens in our life. And some people say, psychologists say, something happened when you're five. And that kind of sets your the rest of your life. That sets up your normal. And normals do change, obviously. But I'm so fascinated, uh, Dr. Kovacs, by your studies and what you know and the depth of what you know. That you this is your uh, normal. You don't you live and breathe uh, this this knowledge, and you're and you're so so deep into it. I could just sit and, and listen to you for hours. I'll love to know when did you find if you can go back into your childhood where you're living and how you're living, who you're living with, when you realize that there's something about the universe, there's something about my life around me, there's something about my normal, that there is more to this than what the eye can show me. 
Yes, absolutely. You, you know, when you say I'm this, that, and the other thing, it always doesn't seem like me because I started out just with questions uh, like so many and just tried to find out things. And these things got attached as I went along because yeah. I took these roots to try. And when I was teaching, it was in the 60s, especially in the 70s, and the students were wonderful. And I started then a class in mythology. We learned together. Mm -hmm. And I love that because they had all kinds of insights and ideas. And I would bring what I could, they brought what they could. And it was a wonderful time of learning and opening up to other stories, other dimensions. Uh, but uh, when I was little, I was five, not quite six, uh, when World War II, uh, Pearl Harbor occurred. Mm -hmm. And uh, my brother and I, we lived in a wonderful place, lots of nature, and we would get up in the morning and we had to wait until the dew dried before we could get outside because we went barefoot. And we just played all day. We had a wonderful time and I, it just was a great life. But I remember that uh, when... We, we were listening to Gene Autry on the radio. Oh, cool. And then it was interrupted to say that Pearl Harbor had been bombed. Mm -hmm. And my parents reacted in, in such a serious way that I knew something had really, I was almost six, uh, oh, that something terrible had happened. And so I kept questioning and questioning my mother, what was war? But the thing that really got me was that it was the adults who were fighting. I mean, my brother and I, if we got into it, we, we, we experienced some discussion about that, but that the adults would. And I don't know how much that really affected me, except it must have been pretty deep because I think all my study was to try to understand why would we do something like that? Why would adults be violent and kill each other? Because it just, it just was so crazy to me. Mm -hmm. But also, I, I think the life I lived in it was ordinary life. We moved from the South to the North uh, because there was work there in, in uh, weapons industry. And it just seemed to me that, that surely there's more than this. I, but I didn't say it in those words. I would think I'm missing something. You know, maybe it's a glass of water, but it wasn't. And so I always had that feeling there's something missing here. There's just not enough. Surely there's more. So as I grew, I, kept, I went to church. I experienced all these kinds of things of going to church and meeting good people and hearing stories about a person called Jesus who lived a decent <laughs> ethical life. And that was impressive and a loving life. But I wanted more. So I think going to college, uh, all of the study was simply to find that more. And then I, you know, I studied mythology, I studied shamanism, I went to Peru twice and worked with shamans. That wasn't the answer either. You mm -hmm. know, I just kept, I mean, I did have some experiences that began, but I, I didn't want to have some guru or some shaman or someone I followed. I wanted to know for myself. And so I began to have experiences when I came back from Peru. And my husband wasn't involved in that. I mean, he was tolerant and, and patient with me. And I can remember one time I wanted to tell him about a, a very powerful vision I'd had in Peru. I don't know why I chose the time he was reading the sports section of the LA Times. And of course, he just had a hard time paying attention to me. And finally, I said to him, Ishwan, you're not really interested in this, are you? And he said, you know, I know you. So I know what you're telling me is true. But mm. I've never had an experience like that. And I have no way of relating to it. And I think that is true. He, he was really honest and true that until we have 
uh, an inner experience in which we experience the cosmos, we don't know how to relate to it because we have been cut off from that for a few thousand years, really, and at least two, but even more than that, actually. But uh, after our son died, mm -hmm. or even before, he had a vision uh, of Pishti's uh, death. He saw a car uh, off the freeway, and he saw Pishti's body superimposed on it, and he knew he was dead. And then he heard himself say, oh, that's right, Pishti. It's almost time for you to do that. Wow, that's fascinating and scary. <laughs> yeah, that's how he felt. He was just, And then Pishti said to him, that's right, Dad. I'll be out of the house for a little while. Wow. And then he went completely unconscious. He didn't remember it until we got the call that Pishti had had an automobile accident on the freeway. Uh, but then, then after Pishti's death, both of us had incredible experiences mm. with his consciousness. And I think that that made the death, well, it made it possible for us to live with that because he, first of all, wanted us to know he's fine, he's okay. Yeah. And he wanted us to remember why we had been born. So at this time, so, you know, we can go back to when we're five or six or young and what happens. But I think perhaps uh, we intend ourselves into our birth as well that perhaps we decide these things on the other side, some of them, and then we come in and try to carry them out. But we're working with hundreds of other people, you know, so it's a very creative process. But I do think we intend uh, certain structures of our lives, perhaps, and we gradually become aware of it. We intend structures of our lives before we're born? Yes, I think on the other side, we are, mm. we are living souls on the other side mm -hmm. and we surely do have something to to say about uh, the life we want to create here on the earth mm -hmm. there surely wouldn't be some necessarily someone who would determine it for us because when we get here we want to we begin to learn we are the mm -hmm. ones who must make choices we certainly make choices with souls who are more uh, knowledgeable and wiser than we i'm mm -hmm. sure but i think surely we have something to say about that and that's what one of the things we did experience after Pishti died is, uh, is why he died and why we were here and what we had hoped to accomplish. I mean, we don't always accomplish everything we want to, but, you know, we try. I always say that uh, we're called human beings. And what I believe is that we were being before we're human. Exactly. Exactly. And that's why, you know, the saying that we're a uh, spirit having an experience in matter, right. <laughs> you know. And, uh, and matter, I see, is, you know, that again has been something that uh, without the shaman mystic tradition that we didn't have a relationship with matter and we look down on matter. You know, the body is, you know, or there's so many, or sexuality was considered yeah. bad in some way. That is such a misunderstanding yeah. of matter because matter is spirit. As one quantum physicist said, it's the way... Uh, matter is the way spirit behaves in the physical world. Mm -hmm. You know, spirit comes in, it's like it coagulates and creates so we can play these incredible games with this body. You mentioned quantum physics and uh, quantum physics meaning for the listener, quantum physics is every atom of life in the entire universe is connected with every other atom. So everything is connected. Exactly. Everything is connected. Yes. Wow. One thing that our ancestors knew is that we're all connected. Mm. And that there's no way when you love, 
you can't be separated, mm. whether you're in the physical body or in the spirit world. And then it's kind of interesting because in our history, there was a time when science began to develop um, that they could not study anything but matter. The church would not let mm. them study anything but matter. And then we developed this very damaging worldview that there's nothing but matter. But we've come full circle with quantum physics because it's, oh, were we mistaken? <laughs> I mean, there's so many dimensions. Yeah. And they, our ancestors knew that we are deeply, profoundly connected. There's really only one. It's Everything is one. And we are all aspects of it. Well, quantum physics brings that back to us. So I think that when we talk about our chances for survival, that quantum physics is a gift <laughs> that, uh, what was it, Paul Levy uh, talks about, that uh, we have... Uh, dreamed quantum physics mm -hmm. to save ourselves oh wow because we had such a a an abysmal awareness of matter and nature we didn't know nature and quantum physics is our dream to experience this vast fullness of nature and ourselves and mm -hmm. it can save us you know it can help us to to open to that vastness and experience it within just the thought of saying everything is connected, it drives this kind of positive energy through me just to think that way. Because once I, as soon as I think everything's connected, that means even walking down the street, brushing by someone, there's a connection. We're, we're living in the same area. We're living, we're breathing the same air. The air has been <laughs> yeah. around for, since time has begun. Yeah, that's right. It's really amazing. I'm in New York. My family is across the country. And yes, we're connected by technology, but my, my, and it's, it's a little poetic, but my heart is connected to her. Exactly. Exactly. And, and to know that, you know, is so important. Uh, yeah. And then we, if we, if we take that farther, then we see that these people who are behaving as though there is a psychosis, <laughs> you know, uh, that logic doesn't change any way that they feel or think. It's like, it's almost like a cancer within the human species, meaning that within our body, we have this cancer that is uh, mm. destroying us. That when we think of, will we survive? The human being has lost the connection to that vastness in ourselves. And that can cause psychosis mm. and what we could call a cancer in the way we think is that we we absolutely have to have power and we have to control others. And and mm. it is it's something that is a part of us too. So how do we understand that and how can we work to heal that within the body of the human species? If we are all one, mm -hmm. it's really hard because sometimes you think, I just like to cut it out, <laughs> you know, give you a knife. <laughs> but no, it's a, yeah. if we can understand. And that's one reason that I, I did that research is that I wanted to understand what happened to us, that we no longer went inward, we no longer understood nature, and that we had these crazy notions of controlling others and building a world the way we wanted, and everyone would have to behave the way we wanted. In fact, that was one of the things that in our discussions with Pishti after he died, that it was to work on what has decayed. Mm -hmm. right. And certainly our relationship with nature and our understanding of the laws of nature and of understanding we're all one and having those experiences, that's decayed. 
and we have to work on it. And one thing I liked is that my husband said, uh, he said, but you know, I realized when he was in the, the visionary state that the decay can work as fertilizer for building a new world. That's fascinating. It's kind of like the story of rebirth. Um, the mother is earth, you're burying the dead. The death is rebirth. I guess that connects to uh, the decay. It's kind of a universal, we are of the earth and then we become the earth. We're born from the earth. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. And you were looking, I think, at that the symbol of the, the female or the goddess, that yeah. she is nature. And our ancestors thought of her as certainly, sometimes you would see the whole universe being born out of mm. her. You would see everything in nature born out of her. And that they thought, well, she, since she's the yeah. earth, she takes the death back into her. And then out of that comes rebirth. And so they understood that there was death as a natural cycle to give birth again. And I think that's something that has hurt us deeply in the Western world is that our science said, well, you know, there's everything is a fluke. You're a fluke. I'm a fluke. Uh, there's no meaning or purpose to any of it. And there's nothing but matter. And when you're dead, you're dead. Mm -hmm. This is what we've lived with since the 1700s. This is a killer worldview. And of course, you couldn't even be considered intelligent if you didn't think that. Mm -hmm. you know. Well, now with quantum physics, we know that that is not the case. We have profound meaning and purpose. And so does the universe. The, it has its own aim. You know? I, I hope the, the Earth has purpose. I mean, it, it's here. A um, couple of things that you brought up, and, and hopefully there's some connectivity between these questions. One was, you way back, you said that you're a child listening to Gene Autry, then you hear the report of Pearl Harbor's attack, and that's it's World War II. And, mm. and as a child, it's so much above you, it's so much bigger than you as a child in a child's brain. I think about my children, when they learn about things that are bigger than them, like the sickness, they call it, and things that are just bigger than them, but they're, but they're going to hold on to for the rest of their lives of... Right now, with the with the pandemic and sickness and social distancing, all these new rules that they just learn to live by with much more ease than we as adults do, I feel. But as a child, you're learning about all this violence and destruction and death. That had to been such a such a grand impact on on you as a as a little girl. And that was the thing that would spark, I guess, for you, the why, the big why. Yes. Why is this happening? Yes, the big why, that's a way to put it. Yeah, that's, and you know, I thought when I was a child, there was no television and we didn't even go to movies until I was probably seven or eight. And then we moved to another place and my brother and I and most of the kids would go to the movies on Saturday afternoon and the news was on with the movie. Right. We went to a movie that was okay for children, but then the news, that impacted me profoundly because it felt like a world where there was no meaning. It'd have about the war, and it just seemed that there was no meaning. There was something really terrible and empty mm -hmm. in the universe. And those images were, were so uh, horrifying to me. I don't know what our children today go through with all of the images that they might see or hear because there's so much, so many ways uh, to experience it now with all of the media that we have. And I, I, I don't know what kind of impact that must yeah. have on children, just knowing that once a week I saw the news and it was horrifying. But it certainly pointed me in the direction of trying to understand why we do those things. I, I'll tell you this, because of the 
the openness of media and how my wife and I don't hold back so much with our children. They, they're, pre they're pretty aware of politics. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Because of our last president mostly, but you know, who's a quote unquote good person, who's a bad person, I guess, or, or what, not bad person, but what they say is, is not nice. It's not what you want your children to, how you want your children to behave. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. And I haven't really thought about this that much, but I could imagine going to the movie theaters at that time, which is a big new, a big new thing. And you're watching the new serial at the beginning of war. And then you watch, you know, uh, a Disney movie or, or, or something right after that. That's just impactful. That just, you're hitting so many emotions. How can you, it's like flipping from a horror movie to a comedy. It's too much. Yes, it's yeah. strange. And I think that I could put a lot of that out of my mind because I wasn't yeah. in a world where uh, the war was actually taking place. I mean, uh, my husband was from Hungary and I know many people in Europe, older people who yeah. went through the war. And uh, there was a, you know, mm. that and, the, and how children were affected yeah. by that and how children are being affected mm. today by, by war. Yeah. And uh, that we don't need to have. And so there's a, we, we just have to recognize, I think, that the human being has a terrible sickness that it would want to try to solve its conflicts mm -hmm. of killing. I mean, we're brighter than that. You know, we, we, we can do so many things, but it's that terrible urge for power and control uh, that we have to somehow understand yeah. and and heal, <laughs> you know. In going back to your earlier question about whether we will make it, I think always I have hope because there's always the possibility. And we, in the last century, there, all of these scholars, independent of each other, discovered these shaman, mystic, scientist cultures that we didn't know about. And it's showing us who we really are. These are the roots of who we are. And it went all the way over to, you know, it was the cave cultures, the megalithic cultures, old Europe for a few thousand years, and Egypt, which just absolutely had blossomed this inner knowledge. And then it was in the first temple Judaism and in the pre-Socratic philosophers from Anatolia who influenced Plato. Peter Kingsley, who actually realized that these pre-Socratic philosophers were great shamans and great healers, and that they created the roots of Western culture. So it's really important for us to know we have, our ancestors did connect and have a healthy uh, way of being in the world. And I think knowing that, and we didn't know it until the last century when a lot of people started discovering and writing about it. So I think it's synchronistic that this knowledge mm -hmm. comes to us. We looked to the East for so long. Well, we had that here. I mean, the pre-Socratics practiced Samadhi and we didn't think we had that in the West, but that's because it had been destroyed and suppressed again and again. And there were, as I have in Emergence of Light, there were five waves of remembering these ancient cultures every Renaissance period was ignited by these ancient cultures. In 1600, the church so destroyed any efforts for the Renaissance. And then there was a 30 years war between Catholics and Protestants. And in the 1600s, they wanted to go beyond this duality. They had that experience of love from the heart consciousness that could dissolve all dualities. 
totally destroyed. We didn't even know that existed no. until 1970. And then when the royal, th these people wanted to start an, a college in which all the whole brain and the heart could, could function, that they would have an enlightenment for the whole world, both uh, visionary in the, in the mystical sense, as well as in the intellectual scientific sense, because they were both. And when they formed the Royal Society for the Study of Science in, in uh, 1660, it was only matter that could be studied. It was like the death right. of that, all those dreams. And then the 17th century French uh, Enlightenment philosophers who said this was the Enlightenment, but it was only half of what this earlier group had dreamed of. So since then, we've had this one-sided view that only the rational brain is important, didn't allow or do what we could for our children to develop the symbolic brain and the heart consciousness. And so we severed those roots to our, who we are with this one-sided brain and there's nothing but matter. We have been in a kind of state of psychosis since then. And I think we're waking up to it now. You know, what happened to us? This is what happened. Mm -hmm. And we need to find our own wholeness. And by going within and making our own choices out of that wholeness. This is a, a pretty grand statement, but do you think that essentially, and I'm not against religion, I'm Jewish, but I'm not religious. But do you feel that religion and all the beliefs about religion, the aspects of religion and the sex of religion kind of because they were following leader, a leader of Christ, instead of going in within kind of pushed aside or buried or killed the spiritual connection from the Eastern world? Well, yes, because in, in the West, that's what happened is that they gave us rules that religion developed. Religion should be teaching us the techniques to go inward. Yeah. You know, as in right. the East, you teach the techniques to go inward and you find the truth. You discover it. You experience it. And the universe is vast. You can't put rules and doctrine on it, you know. But to the extent that a religion would teach us and help us to go within, to find the divine within us, then I think it's helpful. But if religion pulls us outside that and wants us to follow certain rules and beliefs, it can be very dangerous. And in the East, it's basically how to go inward, isn't it? A teaching of, of going inward for inner experience. In the West, uh, that uh, was uh, destroyed. Mm. I mean, the when the pre-Socratics knew the various, I mean, the development of the rational brain, but they also knew how to go into deep states of visionary experience that could last for more than a day or two. Wow. And out of the, those experiences, they formed Western culture with the various disciplines that came from the pre-Socratic philosophers, and they practiced samadhi. That was what we could be. And it was keeping alive this ancient tradition that we naturally intuitively participated in uh, until governments in the West. It was the Habsburg Empire and the Catholic Church, and the Protestant gave a little more freedom, but it still was there telling us what to do. So to the degree that they do not help us to go inward, they can be harmful. That's so against the belief of we are our own being, we're our own strength. As soon as you give up that strength to following something or someone else, you, you, you lose your own grounding. Yes, absolutely. And that's why we, yeah. we have such difficult problems in, in, our, in our development. If we lose mm. that grounding to the earth and to the laws of our nature and nature, 
then yes, we, we don't know who we are and, mm. and we're very easily controlled. And of course, mm -hmm. the Deuteronomist knew that. But also, I want to say, since you are Jewish, that it's interesting when that happened, uh, the first temple was destroyed. There were plenty of Jews who did not go along with that. And many Jews took that wisdom literature that was thrown away by the Deuteronomist. They took it to Egypt, and they kept it. And in Egypt, there were Essenes, and there were the Therapeutae, who they were groups of mystical Jews. And, and the Dead Sea, all the, at the Dead Sea, those were people who did not go along with the Second Temple. They had their own mystical tradition. Now, these traditions may not have lived in the way we might want to, but they were going inward. And at the Dead Sea, they said, we are the ones who have the true covenant of Israel because it was going inward, the mystical. And so there are even stories that the therapeutae that were in Alexandria and Essenes were all over the Palestinian area. So these Jews were really trying to hold on to that inner experience. And if they started the Jesus tradition, it could have been out of the therapeutae in order to teach us to go inward as Jesus and the therapeutae wanted to do. And even Eusebius, who was one of the old church, Roman church fathers, thought that maybe it was the therapeutae who actually wrote the gospels. Oh. And there's another thing that this Indian sage, Vivekananda, he came, you probably know, he came to the United States. Uh, he had a dream on the ship coming to, to America that one of these old therapeutae came to him and he was a sage of the Therapeutae. And he told Vivekananda that indeed they did write the Gospels. And I don't think Vivekananda ever thought that. He said, yes, those came out of the Therapeutae. So again, a Jewish tradition trying to hold on and maintain uh, that inner experience. Mm -hmm. Does that, I might be way off in this, but that, does that have anything to do with Baba Yaga? Well, yeah, Baba Yaga is Russian uh, image and fairy tale. Yeah. I used to teach fairy tale as well, and we had a lot of fun with the fairy tales because uh, whereas myth has these inner experiences in it, it also has history and the culture and so on, the fairy tale will often be quite concentrated in inner experience. And so there will be something will happen that the young person has to figure out. He goes into the forest the unknown, leaves the clearing, which is conscious known life, goes into the unconscious or the forest. And on his or her way, of course, you can lose your way, except the feminine or the mistress of the shamaness of the forest is there. And she is Baba Yaga. And she will be there. And there will always be helpers. And in these tales, if we go on this journey, there are always helpers from nature and from men and women. But Baba Yaga is one that here's a safe haven and you stay with Baba Yaga for a while and kind of get your senses together. And then she sends you on your way, but she throws a ball before you and that ball unwinds and that is the path that you take. So what it's really saying is that if we go on this journey, the laws within our own nature will give us the direction. It will lead us just like Baba Yaga's uh, ball of yarn or thread. You follow that thread. In other words, you're when we enter into the labyrinth of our own soul, we will find the direction, the directions will be given to us to take this journey, the inner direction, not the doctrine of the church, the soul will direct us. And you speak of uh, labyrinths a lot in your books, yeah. which I find fascinating that it's a labyrinth within us, it's a labyrinth of our, of our journey that we can get lost in uh, as well. But you're saying that this string will lead us through the labyrinth? 
Well, uh, we can call it, yeah, that's one image of it, and it can be a string. Or we can just say that once we enter the labyrinth, yeah. it's not a maze. If we keep walking, yeah. we'll get to the center. I mean, the labyrinth will keep going. It will gradually, we walk and we walk, and we will get to the center. That is uh, the mysticism, you might mm -hmm. say, of the labyrinth, because the labyrinth is like our own soul. Mm -hmm. And if we make the choice that we want to understand and take that inner journey to know who we are, then we once we enter it, we've asked that question and we will keep walking. If you stay on the journey, we might get depressed or think it's no use or there's nothing to it. But if we will simply stay on it, the labyrinth itself will lead us to the center. So what you're saying is no matter which way we go, if we get off of the thread, if we get off the predetermined, so our journeys are predetermined is what I'm saying. Mm, no, I okay. think, I think each one of us has our own journey. And so that labyrinth, when we enter that labyrinth, that is our journey and our soul will guide us. Yes, we, mm -hmm. could, we could get off track for sure, but within the, we can learn from that because if, if we stay with it and that is our goal to know who we are and to live our journey, then uh, the soul will guide us. Now we can think, wait a minute, there are just so many things that could happen. It's true, but we can always then get back on the path if that's our intention. If that's our intention. So when the string is, is rolled out for us, um, there's an end to the string. So where is the other end is what I'm saying is that there, because there's, if there's an end to the string, that means our, our journey is predetermined. So no. There is an ending to it. So is it sitting in the center of the labyrinth or... Yes. Yeah. And it's okay. remember that Baba Yaga is us. Right. That, okay. I am Baba Yaga. You are Baba Yaga. You are the labyrinth. I'm the labyrinth. Is that we have our own journey. And yeah. so if it's not that it is predetermined by any outside force, we have an intention. That's the determinant factor, I suppose. We have an intention. If it's nothing within, I just want to know what's going on here. My brother used to, when he was really little, he'd say to my mother, I know what I'm going to ask God as soon as I get to heaven. And she said, what? And he said, how come all this anyhow? <laughs> and yeah, how come it all anyhow? And yeah. if we have that, we want to know that the soul, that is our soul, the ball of thread that yeah. will lead us to the center. Yes. And in one sense, the metaphor probably breaks down because it can be, it is eternal, really. But if we're talking about the particular journey that we have, then we can take that. Well, and when we get to the center, then it still can unwind for us because it's how then do we create in the world once we have a vision of who we are mm. that continues in that sense. I also believe in the, the deity of Ganesh. Once we're off of the path, it's we're pushed back on, the obstacles are removed or put in our way to stay back on our path. I like that. Yeah. But what happens when, however I say this, when there are so many options ahead of us or not enough options and we get caught in the weighing the pros and the cons of what our next step is? I always believe that the next step of our path is going to happen naturally for us. We shouldn't force our steps, it will come, will be moved by our steps. But what happens when we feel that when we're stuck in the labyrinth, we can't get out of that, that area of the labyrinth. And there are, we see other options around us. And then we have to like extrapolate our next steps of the path. Okay. Those are pros and cons there. We have to weigh those pros and cons over there. Those pros and cons over there. I know I need to get out of this spot because the pros and cons where I am now, 
I wish they were, you know, balanced better. So what happens <laughs> when we're stuck, when we have, we either we feel like there's too many options or not enough options, but we know where we are right now is not the best place to be. Yeah. Well, you know, again, we can go back to fairy tales. These myths and fairy tales are not just, let's say, sacred. We can call them sacred because they show us the way, but they're sacred because they are created out of the laws of nature, mm -hmm. our nature, the soul. It's uh, They are not random, you might say. And what they tell us is that all that you're talking about is part of the journey and that we have to keep the intention in our mind mm -hmm. and allow ourselves, I think, to be quiet. That's the role of meditation, I guess, <laughs> and allow this to settle in the place where it needs to be so that we can see our, our way forward. Mm. You know, is that always in these fairy tales, the, the person gets in just such a place, doesn't know what to do, but then something from nature always comes, mm. you know? So I, I think it's- At the right time. At the right time, yeah. Mm. And, but sometimes we have to just, we are stopped. We're stopped and, we have to, we see all of these that you're describing, and then we, we have to think it through, feel it through, intuit it through, and then, and then wait. And I, I've often, like when something doesn't happen, I think that I sort of wanted to happen. I think, well, it's probably not time. I'll wait because I, I, and see what happens. And I think that's the kind of patience we have to have in the journey. Patience. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that's very important is to have the patience. So I love to get, you had mentioned, I had mentioned, I love to talk about, you're so open with talking about the deaths in your family and the connectivity between the deaths in the family. And you mentioned Ishtivan and the dreams yeah. he had about your son, Pishti. What I found fascinating, now your mother died, your husband died, and your son died. Well, and my mother was killed in a car accident. Mm -hmm. and uh, instantly. Mm -hmm. And then one year later, on the very on the same day, same day, same hour, mm -hmm. uh, he he was taken off the machines. Now, his accident happened earlier, but he died on the same day that she had one year before. And even at the hour. Okay. Uh, and then after Pishti's death, then there were two years and four months that Ishtvan and I had, and we had many experiences during that time. And he had experiences of his coming death, but we kept looking at it symbolically, you know, and uh, he had to go to Hungary. His, he had family there. And he also, once Hungary opened up, he had some of his equipment made for his business there and that gave him a chance to visit. And he was going to go to Hungary. In the morning he was going to go, he had a vision that it's time. The, you know, the voice was saying, it's time, Ishvan. And he was resisting it, but it was that he would die. But we didn't have a chance to talk about it being symbolic at that point. But yeah. then he was killed in an automobile accident there. So there were three of them within three years. Three by automobile accidents. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the thing that I found profound, well, all of it's profound, but the initial thing when I read this, and I'm sure you thought about this, your mother who created, who created your life mm -hmm. died. Your son, the life that you created died. And then your husband, your, your soulmate, the person you created life with died. I just found that so profound, this life connection. And the other thing, besides the crazy connection that they're all by uh, automobile yeah. accidents and the crazy connection that it was on the same 
day and almost the same time is that even your husband, Ishtvan, who was is not connected as deeply as you are to the spiritual world, also had not only he, but your son and your son's girlfriend had dreams, had premonitions of the deaths. How is that possible that even he knew he was going to die? <laughs> well, I don't think his girlfriend had a premonition of oh. his death, but she did experience him after his death, his consciousness. That's amazing. And uh, But uh, we were also very tuned yeah. in to, in meditation and music and different different ways of of allowing this to happen. But um, yes, now Ishvan, by the time he died, he was totally changed because after Pishti's death, he did have experiences with him. And so by the time he actually died, he was a different person. He had really tuned into that. And he even felt that he had to kind of keep himself on ice until Pishti died so that then he would open up to that. I don't know why, but Pishti had opened up to it uh, in his life. And when he was uh, almost 12, not quite, he had a dream that uh, he was in the trauma center and he was up mm -hmm. above looking down at what he called his dead body. Actually, that body was dead, but they kept it alive uh, right. for 13 days on every machine they had. But he said, I'm looking down at my dead body. And he said, and then there's a space of darkness. And then I'm on the other side and I'm standing like in a horseshoe. I'm standing at the top of the horseshoe. There are four boys on the right, four on the left. And we're looking across an eternal fire. And I see the aura of the 10th boy. And I know when he arrives, I will be complete because 10 is the number of completeness. And then he says, what do you think it means, mom? <laughs> well, we talked about that. And I, I was concerned about it but we talked about going through puberty it's you you know you really are dying to the child you're becoming a man and we I tried to look at it in every symbolic way I could it did disturb me but we were able to go on and think of it symbolically which was good and then after he died I looked back at dreams I kept a journal I realized I'd been dreaming about his death for two years wow and then it was, oh, it wasn't his death. It was the son of a friend of mine, but I was grieving and mourning for, you know. And so then when I look back at that, I had looked at them symbolically, but I felt after his death that I had known on some deeper level and that I had grieved, which helped me, you know, when it actually happened. And uh, of course, Ishvan had had that one uh, experience of it happening. And then Pishti in the last year of his life had another dream that's in the book mm -hmm. and it's kind of complicated, but it was by a huge impact. He was in the hospital. They were working with him to keep him alive until a voice said, you know, yeah. it's not possible. Then he felt himself go out into the universe and then come back, go out and come back until finally he realizes that body's not me and, and he's gone. And he said he went through the the cosmos so fast that planets popped as he went by them. You know? Amazing. Well, it's almost like he was practicing yeah. leaving the body, but he had that within the year that he did die. Just to speak about this, I couldn't imagine. I, and I'm sure maybe other people would feel that these deaths would just crumble someone. Were just They would just crumble someone. And were these dreams, these premonitions, these connections to the knowledge that you know that did, did this keep you strong through all this uh, traumatic time? You know, that's a very good question. I feared death most of my life. In my mother's family, the women died very young, and I was so afraid of losing her. We moved mm. a lot, and I was afraid I couldn't live without her. Well, she didn't die. I'm very grateful until 
she was 77, I think. So I was very mm -hmm. grateful that I had her that long. But the answer to the question is why it didn't destroy me. And it would have, because mm -hmm. I certainly, when Pishti was born and growing up, I, I thought I would die if anything happened to him. And so I had yeah. to train myself as he got to be a teenager not to be, you know, <laughs> how to live with that and to let him be himself and be free. But um, the answer is simple. It is because we experienced his consciousness mm -hmm. many times after his death. And the same with Ishtwan I did after his death. And I think that we are, that that is our natural state is to be in touch with the other dimension of consciousness. We have severed ourselves from that and we suffer tremendously because of it. And if someone, I mean, if someone dies and you have no further contact really with them, it's devastating. Mm -hmm. And and am so grateful that we both did because I would have, you know, wondered, am I losing my mind or what? But we both did. Yeah. And I think someone would say to me, oh, well, that's you. That wouldn't happen to me. No, it happened to me because it's possible to happen to anybody, all of us. And I think our being severed from who we are has prevented that. And that if we make those connections, then we understand that every one of us has chooses our lives or can, and that when there is a death, that person is still existing and creating in another dimension of reality. And we can still co-create together in ways that we choose. Now, I had been working for, uh, I had gone to Peru, as I said, twice and worked with shamans. And so there were a lot of shamanic methods of triggering this experience that I had learned through uh, chanting or uh, dance or music, and also sacred medicine. And in this culture, you know, that we don't know a lot about that. But our ancestors since 40,000 BCE used all of these methods, different groups use different methods, and a sacred medicine and used in a sacred context can open the mind to the other dimension. And so Ishtvan, for example, he felt he had himself cut off for so long that even going to work, he said it was like a tape recorder going, like everything had been that loose. So there were just many ways that we were experiencing this other dimension, but we did uh, right. use music and chant and, and sometimes sacred medicine. I had been a part of a, a group SAS, it was studies in altered states. And uh, we knew Terence McKenna, for example, is, uh, and so we thought, okay. And uh, we were all part of the Jung Society. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. Some of them were pretty old, uh, probably not as old as I am now <laughs> at the time. But at any rate, we wanted to study various methods of triggering this consciousness. So I think that helped us. And what I think is that we want to bring up our children so that the whole brain knows how to function. The symbolic and the conceptual and the heart, we want that. But we also want, and it should be the aim of our society, to teach our children how they can tune into the heart and experience other dimensions. This is our heritage. And I think we're just beginning to relearn it and discover that, oh, our ancestors knew that. And I think this is how we can live through all of these deaths. We still have to restructure our daily life to live without them. And that is difficult, but it is possible if we know that they are still creating. It's as a mother with a son, I knew that I had to let 
him go at a given point and be himself. And so when his death came, I remembered that, that I, as a mother, had to let him go. And he had to make those choices. So I think Mm. that those things helped me. But especially experiencing his consciousness, which we recorded everything after we had the vision or the dream. And that's what I have in the book, Miracle of Death. Mm -hmm. But I think we're ordinary people and ordinary people have miraculous abilities that we've lost and we're rediscovering. Yes. And I completely agree with that. Now, do you believe that also with um, Ishvan? It seemed like from my perspective when I was reading it, that Ishvan was like a, a lay person uh, didn't have the connection to the spiritual world, to, to these premonitions until he did. <laughs> right. Do you feel that was your influence that helped him open up? Because he, he, he was like, that's your thing. That's not my thing. Well, until Pishti died. Until Pishti died. Yeah. And that was what did it. Wow. I mean, I, that was for him. It was, yeah, that was what every parent knows it would be, you know, that first of all, he'd, he remembered then, the vision that he'd had that that Pishti told him, yes, dad, and being out of the house for a little while, we later felt, oh, he came back when we experienced him in the visions. Mm. And so Ishvan had experiences that were so profound. And he, he was changed. After the first experience, he was not the same. He just said to me, I had no idea what you were talking about. And I will never look at the earth in the same way wow. again. And he actually became an anchor for me because I'd had all this training at the university and it was unfortunately in my brain, you know, and it would make me, after I was out of the vision, I'd start doubting, could something so miraculous really be happening? Mm -hmm. And so I would go into these places of doubt, but he was an anchor. He never doubted again. He knew. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And then after... A while I did too, but it took me longer to accept the miraculousness of it because of my university training that mm-hmm. the rational mind is superior. It is, you know, to all. I, I didn't believe that, but that came back. We are brainwashed, you know, to accept Western modes of thinking. And that's what one of the things we also have to heal in ourselves. I want to read a stanza from your book. This was about. Uh, Pishti's accident. And now Pishti, he was on life support. It was about two weeks. Thirteen days. 13 yes, days. Two weeks. So that gave you and Ishivan a time to be with him and come to terms. Come to terms with it. Yeah. Your mother's accident was immediate. Mm-hmm. If I remember correctly, in the book you said, "Well, that might have been a good thing for it to be instant." Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I think yeah. that, especially as we go older, we begin to realize why older people say, I don't want a long right. illness. I want to go quickly. And my mother had always said, I hope I go quickly. And uh, she was crossing mm-hmm. the street and a car hit her and she went immediately. Yes. And Ishvan did too. Ishvan's was very quick too. Ishvan was too. Now, when you write about Pishti's accident, with Pishti's accident, it was as though we had entered a highly charged energy field. If you don't mind me reading your book to you. No, do please. I'm honored. <laughs> <laughs> so with Pitchy's accident, it was though we had entered a highly charged energy field of strange coincidences, synchronistic events, powerful dreams, and waking visions. Experiences that earlier appeared to be unrelated were beginning to reveal a poetic logic that was organizing these fragments into coherent form. 
the picture that was emerging included our own individual lives as integral narratives within a much larger pattern. Our plunge into eternity did indeed bring a jarring end to everything we had considered normal. We were now open to a life force that was infinitely creative, yet we were painfully aware that this force included our experience of Pishi's death. Yeah. That's so profound. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you for reading that. That's, uh, sometimes I look back on those experiences and, and am amazed <laughs> myself, you know? Yeah. Uh, and part of what you, a couple of lines uh, were from a colleague of mine who had written about, you know, that you're experiencing what every parent dreads, uh, fears, yeah. the telephone call. And then some, a couple of the lines that she has there. Uh, and yes, that is what happened. That is what happened is that it's as though the universe, the world that we lived in became so intensified and charged. And I don't think that would have happened without his death mm. and that it just cracked us open, you know, to some, a larger dimension. And Fishy would sometimes say to his dad, because his dad no longer had a fear of death, except he, he said, I just don't want to die. I don't want to leave this body yet. I'm not ready to go. And Fishy once said to him, oh, dad, he said, there's nothing to fear. You've done it many times. Wow. Yeah. So it's, uh, there were just so many things, you know, that when we're born into this culture, mm. we have such limited ideas about life and who we are and what we can experience. And as you say, with the normal, the normal, as I said in that book, sometimes I realized I'd been living in one square inch of reality uh, and calling it reality. That was the norm. And this just shattered us out of it. And many people, I've met people since then who've had these kinds of experiences. And that might be what's happening to us to shatter us out of, of a way of life that is so limited mm -hmm. that it makes us ill. Right. You said something that um, quickly just going back to the knowledge and connection to the universal mind, which leads to destruction and violence and drugs that fill the void of our heart and soul, that when we're born, we're born into that. And then we, that's our basis to live. And that's all we know. Yeah. Except something in us knows something, you know, mm -hmm. that's something in us, <laughs> as you were talking about in the beginning. Reading about these deaths, I was hit by a car. Uh, I almost died when I was 15. I came very close. Ooh. And everything that could have happened didn't. And, you know, I was very lucky for whatever reason. I was very lucky. It wasn't my time. So, you know, I could have gone blind. I, I could have had a permanent limp, um, whatever, you know, just a lot of things. And uh, they put me into a coma. Mm. I had head trauma, but Ugh. I could have had brain damage because I, you know, I had I didn't have a helmet on. It was it was 1992. Helmets were not a big thing then, so I had broken bones, but I had no surgeries. My left wing of my pelvis is not exactly the same as it should be, but a lot of internal injuries, head trauma, and mm. uh, but I was mm. out of the hospital in two weeks. You know, I had like years of therapy and psychological therapy and physical mm -hmm. therapy. But it wasn't my time, I guess. And reading that when Pishti was, was how old, was he 16? He was 20. 20, I'm sorry, 20. 20, yeah. Yeah, one year before your accident in 91. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, and the day that I was hit, there was another child of the same age who was also hit and killed by a car. And I was just thinking, it wasn't my time. And, it, and you know, I began to think about life in a different way mm -hmm. when that happened. Yeah, yeah. For a teenager going through, you know, 
maturity and connecting to life and you know and then i started writing really dark stuff it wasn't my time but then i read these these accidents by a car and saying no this is your time this is your time this is your time what's that about i you know just like the same exact way it, it always gives me a sense of i have this ptsd obviously from from that every time i think about a car accident or or someone getting hit by a car uh, even though I don't have memory of it, I had a dream about it when I was under, but how do you feel that, why was that the reason or how, what was the symbolic connection between your mother, your son and your husband all getting killed the same way by a car? Do you have you ever thought about this before? Oh, I've thought about it a yeah. lot. Uh, and I'm not sure I can, that I can really answer that, but I think that you know, when you're talking about your accident and how it wasn't your time, so many people have had that experience, like a near-death experience, and they get on the other side. Sometimes they can choose. You can stay or you can go. And some, it's that, no, you cannot stay. It's not your time. And when Pishi was on the other side and we were in touch with him, it was, you know, it was, it was like a lot of joy in him. And yes, it was his time, and I, for various reasons, and and I felt that with Ishtvan too. I mean, but I do think that we come in, as we were talking earlier, with intention. Mm. And we have a lot of experiences that we may or may not have intended. But uh, if it's really one that's going to get us close to death, so many people, it's like, no, you have that. What they're really saying, I guess, is you haven't fulfilled your intention yet. Mm. And so you you can go back and, and do it. Because I think that we all do have a purpose. And as I said earlier, you know, I love Brian Swims, uh, the cosmologist who says that, you know, the cosmos has a purpose and the earth has its aim. And if we can align our individual aims with the earth, we'll be much happier. Yeah. So I just think, yes, you had, there was something yet you were going to do on this earth and you are doing it now with, you know, a wife and two girls and what you're doing now, I mean. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, looking at my life now, I wouldn't have what I have. I just find it amazing that even your husband had premonitions, even Pishi's girlfriend, just the energy, the openness of the energy and the connection to the energy, that's not a normal thing to know, to hear about. Just that you all had these interweaving connections, premonitions, visions, of each other's death. I just find that so amazing. I, th I think it is amazing. And as you talk about it, and I think many of the interests also that my son had, I sort of took for granted. And now I look back and I think, gosh, that was kind of amazing. Yeah. I mean, he was a teenager and he had all the problems teenagers right. have, you know, but uh, he was very interested in these things. But yes, the fact that there were three accidents yeah. and car accidents. And also I've thought many times, how grateful I am that they died in those accidents rather than having brain damage and crippled in, in a way that they couldn't function right. in life, couldn't live their lives. Because I could have had three people with severe brain damage and they wouldn't have really, their soul couldn't live in that body. Right. And I used to say to Pishti, you know, to, well, I, when he was in the hospital the first day I was there, I said, you know, you can, I don't know where this came from, but I said to him, if you choose to live, you can come back whole and well, but be sure that you don't, uh, that if you die, take the body with you. Don't come back. 
don't let this body be a crippled body that you come back into. Mm. You know, you don't have to do that, yeah. you know, take care of the body because if the, for the body to live, be alive in a way that the soul can't live in it, although it may live in ways we don't yeah. know, but also there was, there was gratitude that they had not had to suffer those kinds of things, you know, and gratitude helps us to accept yeah. a lot. But I think it, the other was understanding and experiencing it, uh, experiencing his consciousness, both of their consciousness on another side. And w- when my mother died, I didn't experience anything like that until uh, Pishti died. And I was on the other side and I saw my mother and my mother was crying. And it it really disturbed me because I it was in the beginning of all this. And I thought, why? Why would she be crying on the other side? What's wrong? What's happening? And then the next day I was in Pishi's room, which before he died, he'd made it like a meditation room. He repainted it and put in, put these shamanic uh, paintings on the walls, pinned them on the wall. And, uh, and I was in there that day and suddenly I knew, I knew exactly. It was like my mother was present and no word was spoken, but I knew that she was crying for me because I had to go through Pishti's death. And I felt that I, I knew and of course, I didn't worry about her anymore, but I just, that was so, such a profound just experience of intuition and knowing and feeling her presence that she was with me in that grief. And that was a beautiful experience. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. That's just amazing. And there was something that Pishti said to you. Was that um, dance life in snake boots? Yeah, that was a beautiful experience. Is that I was lying in bed facing the north and I felt him... I could hear and feel a music that was just so dynamic and energizing and beautiful. And I saw him coming out of the North dancing in boots. Now, when he was a little kid, we got him a pair of boots and, oh, he loved them. He went next door and he was dancing a little dance in front, waiting. There were three little girls next door he played with. When the mother came to the door, he loved these boots. Well, here he is coming out of the North dancing in these snake boots. And, uh, and then I intuit, feel him saying, dance life in snake boots. And of course, the, I, the snake is constantly shedding its skin and renewing itself, becoming other. And I thought that was, a. it was like, don't get caught in things. Don't get trapped in things. You know, the, the skin changes constantly. Live life that way, constantly renewing and transforming. Okay, now, now I get it. Okay, <laughs> so I see. To dance life in snake boots because the, the boots are made up of the, the shedded skin. You know. Rejuvenation of life, yeah. shedding off the old, welcoming the new. Yes, constantly. You talk about the symbolism of circles, and it's kind of like the infinity, like the number eight. It is precisely, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and that's the way life is itself. That is it, yeah, the infinity. One more thing, and, and there's so much more to, to talk about, and we've talked a lot, but after Istvan's death, Mm-hmm. It came to you in a dream. I'm trying to understand my own notes. It came to you in a dream, or maybe he asked you, how long will it take you to understand what we must become to survive in this world? Oh, that was a dream before Pishti's death. Okay. Yes, I had a dream. I was in, uh, in uh, the sacred lands in New Mexico and Arizona, and I woke up with that dream. And uh, there was it was something... I was in bed, lying in bed by my Austrian daughter. We had brought her here from Vienna to live with us. And she's married and has a, has a child. He was a little child then. And my husband was behind. Oh, I know. I, I experienced this terrible crash. 
uh, it's a horrible crash. And Pishti hadn't died yet. And then I was with her son. And he said, it was some sort of negative or violent way of handling something. And I sort of reprimanded him in the dream. You know, we don't want to do it that way. And then he looked at me and said, how long will it take you to understand what we, meaning like the children of the world, have to do to survive this world? Oh, God, that was heartbreaking. It was, you know, and that is a question I ask. Mm. Our children all over the world, so many children are put in situations that they become not necessarily what they have intended, but they have to create a way of surviving in the world that we have given them. And I think that's a huge responsibility for adults. Now, the interesting thing is that many years later, he also died in a crash. And that was about two or three years ago. Ishvan. Not Ishvan. This was my Austrian daughter's son that I was talking to in that dream. Oh, he also died. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was killed in a car crash. Uh, not, no, he's on a motorbike about, I think, well, this year will be three years, I think. So, but there were things about that dream I don't know, except that it was as though he was saying to me, you know, when I thought maybe he could find a better solution to the problem, that how long would it take me to understand what children have to become in order to survive this world? And that brings us back to the beginning when you were five and six experiencing World War II, experiencing Pearl Harbor. And I'm thinking about my girls who are experiencing this life. And you think about other children who are the victims of, of war or the children who are locked up in cages mm -hmm. for political reasons and separated, separation, yeah. all this horrible stuff. They are the victims of adult behavior exactly. and how they're handling it. Yes. And what will they become? Right. How can we change our No fault of their own. No. And how can we, what is our responsibility as uh, adults, you know, to try to make a world in which these children have a chance yeah. to be who they intend to be? Yeah. And you speak about the pollution that's around the earth, which is created by Western society. Well, that was Jenny, uh, his girlfriend, had that experience that uh, yeah, it was a, a lovely experience for her. She was on the beach with him and he just picked her up and took her out into the ocean and then he talked to her and, and she was out, they went out beyond the earth and she saw the pollution. And he said that much of it is chemical pollution, but so much of it is the thinking, the feeling, the way we, we live our lives that cause this pollution, that it's, that's out of our lack of development that we have caused this pollution. And then uh, that so much of it was a kind of spiritual pollution, you yeah. might say, or lack of spiritual. And then he told her to, she was just 19, and he said, you know, to take care of your body uh, and take care of the body of the earth because that's your larger body. And she said, I had never thought of anything like that before. But yeah, that was interesting that we create Western culture or now the earth culture, we've influenced the whole world, is that we do, uh, we create a pollution around the planet that is uh, thinking, feeling pollution yeah. out of out of our not bringing forth what is within us. I always find it interesting that someone who who had, does not care about themselves, who pollute the their inside, let's say if someone who smokes a cigarette, so they're going to pollute their inside, they're breathing it out into the air, they're polluting the air, and then they're going to flick their used butt onto the ground. So the three-way pollution, <laughs> and there's so much physical pollution around us, so much air pollution around us, and that is a an extreme, obvious connection to how people feel about themselves, if I could say that. 
Yeah, that's that's true. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And there's so many things that we have polluted the earth with that yeah. our children are ill from these things. And also many of the medicines uh, that we give our children uh, are also mm. toxins that cause uh, autism and other neurological uh, damages. We need to be much more cautious about the medicine and the food, because we have now in uh, in this country, one child in 36 with autism, and that doesn't happen naturally. You know, there we know what causes it. There are quite a, there are several things that cause these uh, you know toxins uh, in our atmosphere. What's going to happen when we get to one autistic child and another one who has to take care? I mean, this is serious. What we're doing to the children and the children's uh, health is much lower now than it was in the past. And makers of these medicines know that. They have the statistics. So I think there are just so many ways in which we bring about the pollution in the bodies of others, uh, by law, mm -hmm. often. <laughs> and, uh, and that we have these things in our atmosphere which are destroying our children, and we know. We could change those things, those ways of, you know. Yeah. So I think those are serious issues, which again, prevents our children from being who they could be in a serious way. In a serious way, and it, and it all comes down to uh, to money and, and and politics. And mm -hmm. you know, we, we could have electric cars, we could have clean air, we call all this, but mm -hmm. it's all it's all about money. Mm -hmm. And there are pockets of of cancer. Uh, if you're born in certain uh, area United States, you, there's you know the high percentage of you are going to get breast cancer. And in these parts of the country that you're going to get sickness, and then they use that's, drugs. That's right. And, yeah. and the earth itself is so damaged that, of course, we're going to be damaged, too. Yeah. We damage our bodies, we damage the earth, we damage the earth, and then we damage our own bodies. There shouldn't be this kind of illness that we see on the earth. And that's, again, from not relating to the earth as part of who we are mm -hmm. and knowing the laws of nature. We have absolutely... Uh, uh, destroyed <laughs> a relationship with nature and nature's suffering and we're suffering. Yeah. I always find it fascinating that our country is the only country, there might be one other, but I believe it's our only country that has commercials for drugs. And in the commercial for the drug, which is there to fix an ailment which was created by yourself or nature, you take this drug, but then you have this long list of side effects <laughs> I know, including death. Right. So what are you actually preventing? Uh, yeah. Well, you had, in the 1900s, there were um, many uh, methods of healing through natural uh, products, and that was developing, but that was totally destroyed by uh, uh, those who wanted to have chemical medicine and make a lot of money from yeah. it. And just like chiropractic work was uh, destroyed by the AMA because they were having, they were helping many people. So they've sent people all over the country to uh, tell people that it was voodoo, it was uh, quackery and that kind of thing. So we've been misled in a lot of ways by our brothers and sisters who must not have brought forth what was within them and they needed to control us. Yeah. And uh and it's taken us a long time to begin to become aware of that because when you step outside the norm of thinking as we are told to think about it, we don't even know the history of medicine, uh, that then we're criticized or people are criticized. It's awfully hard to talk about the truth of these things because a lot of money is involved in, in not only medicine, but all kinds of industries. 
And I, I'm hopeful, though, I'm hopeful for the young people, you know, younger people than I am, <laughs> that, you know, they, they seem to be aware of these things. They want a world that will last, that they'll have to live in. You know, they want a climate that uh, will be livable. And they don't want politicians who are constantly lying to them and telling them one thing when they know the other is true, you know. So I'm, I'm hopeful that change is coming through this, these more creative attitudes of young people. I think so, too. I think there is, a, I guess, another rebirth of knowledge and awareness. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways social media has helped in, in that sense to be more aware of what's happening around us. I have one more thing to talk about. What I found so beautiful, and I wrote it in big letters on the top of my page, and I highlighted, <laughs> you talk about balance. And we always say, live in the moment, be present, be mindful. But in this, this sentence, we also we say that, but we also say when something is bothering you, to, okay, okay, let it go. Don't let it, don't, you know, don't hold on to it. So in this statement, this statement is live each moment fully, then let it go. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, Pishti was telling me that. That was an experience I had. He hadn't, I think, two weeks after his death. It was really hard time. And I went to a bookstore and I heard this music. And I, the music just was so powerful. I had to sit down <laughs> and listen to it. And then I asked someone, what was that? I bought the music. I came home, put the tape in in his room, which, as I said, was like a meditation room. I was jumping into my sweats. And as I was changing my clothes, just like I, I had to go there immediately. I went in, lay on the bed and Pishti was present. I mean, it was like he was in the upper right-hand corner. My eyes were closed, but I felt his presence. And so we, he said, let's go through all the phases of my life, Mom. Wow. And, and uh, he's helping me get through it. And, and then there would be an experience in which I would start to really connect to it, and I didn't want to let it go. And then when that, I was surfing, we were surfing. No, I've never surfed in my life, but in, <laughs> wow. the, in the vision, we were surfing on the ocean. And so when I would start to really get attached to that moment, I'd start to sink. And then Pishti would say to me, you know, to, to live each moment fully, then let it go. And as I could let it go, I could ri- I was rising up then on the surface of the ocean. And th- we went through several things, you know, like that. We got through this teenage, I said, I don't. I won't get attached to those years. <laughs> those are hard years. I'll let that go. But then, and, and then I was in the hospital when he was dying, and I thought, no, no, I can't let this go. But then I really started sinking down. Oh. And then he said again, "Mom, live it fully. Live each moment fully. Then let it go." And as I could begin to try to let it go, then. Uh, I would rise and survive. So it was it was a real help to me in the beginning weeks of his death, you know, to not to try to clutch on to to really realize that we're in this life and that every experience we have, we live through it and then we do have to let it go. We have the memories and we connect those and live with those feelings, but the experience itself we have to let go. Because, you know, it's a very creative thing to come into the world to be born and to die because we're born then into another dimension and we're creating there. And people who have uh, gone past to the other side 
have sometimes been able to get in touch with others and tell them about the incredible creativity of the other side. And we felt that with Pishti as well, that it's very creative. This was the way. So that helped me to let it go <laughs> and not sink. And it, I guess it, it connects to someone who's saying, uh, don't hold your breath, breathe. <laughs> if you breathe through it, if you exhale, you're letting it go. Oh, that's good, yes. And you know, I can get hung up with something that I didn't think I did this well, or I'd made that a mistake. And I think, okay, let it go. <laughs> you know, yeah. we're not perfect. We make mistakes. Yeah. And let it go because we can get caught up with the craziest things. Yeah. Yeah. And I find myself doing that too. I, I go back on, you know, the day before of what I did or what I said and how that may have affected my standing in my job or my relationship with someone else but that's just all made up story in my head because it could be nothing they could be they had could have forgotten about whatever moment it is but but i'm holding on to this <laughs> yeah story. right yeah. you're still I'm knowing about it yeah. i'm stressing myself out if it comes yeah. up if it's talked about again i'll talk about it. but right now i'm wasting my energy yeah. worrying about this thing that <laughs> yeah. not even big so true i always feel that and, and i feel like i'm crazy to say this but I always feel that there, that there is something, some kind of energy around me. There's sometimes it's almost like a paranoid thing where I feel like there's like a force around me or an energy around me, or mm. it sounds paranoid, it sounds crazy, but that I'm being watched. Mm. Even saying it sounds crazy. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. And you say in your book, Listen to the force behind the force of pure creativity. It is the essence of life. Now, I don't know if that's a force behind you living or what is that force behind the force? You know, this was from Pishi. He had, uh, he drew a lot of things, painted things and drew things. And he had a picture of himself with Salvador Dali. Cool. And under it, he had this uh, quotation of uh, listen to the force behind the force. And I'm not, I don't know if I remembered exactly. This is the force behind the force. Of pure creativity. It is the essence of life. Oh, of pure creativity is the essence of life. Yeah. And so I checked with the foundation of Salvador Dali to see. They couldn't, they said they had, didn't have that quotation from Dali. <laughs> so I don't know where he got it or if it was his and he was attributing. But afterwards we thought, you know, we, it was kind of, that was part of what we were talking about. And I've thought of that a lot. I think that I don't know exactly what Pishti meant by it, and I've thought about it a lot, but certainly, like what you're feeling, this this force, this energy uh, a pattern or beingness that's around you. Yes, I think that um, mm -hmm. that's not crazy at all. Well, that's good. And if you have it, you're, I'm, you're listening to it for sure. You are aware of it. Who knows, you know, exactly what that is. I've been seeing for years now, uh, especially when I'm in... New York, a lot of repetitions. Mm -hmm. And I've written stuff down back in 2018. As far as back in 2018, I started writing down repetitions of signs, of words, of oh, thoughts. Yeah. And yesterday it was dust to dust. Oh, that's interesting. In the beginning of the day when I woke up, I read something, it said dust to dust. And at the end of the day, as something reading something else uh, that mentioned the term dust to dust came up. And it happens a lot to me. And I don't know why, but I'm very aware of that. And I don't know what the meaning behind that is. Well, that it is interesting. Uh, and you're writing them down. So you'll look at the patterns and you'll see. And it, and again, the I don't patients, always write them down because yeah. I don't know what to sign until it happens. And then <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Then it's well, it's interesting because when there's a pattern, you think there's a certain energy trying to get through. Maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. it's uh, 
but it's just that awareness of what it might be, you know. It's a new normal to me. And I don't know if you believe in numerologists or energy readers, but I've been told that by a past life reader, who I think was also a female rabbi, that I am in the last plane. Mm-hmm. My soul is in the last plane. This physical body that I'm in is the last physical body that my soul is going to be in. And then I'm going to go mm-hmm. onto another plane. This sounds crazy. No, no, that's no, no, it's not crazy. And then once I get to the other plane, there's going to be other souls that are going to follow me because I know where I'm going. Like I know how I have the information. And then a numerologist has said to me, if I believe in it, that I once studied uh, the tombs in Egypt. I was a cryptologist. So I would study the mummification corpses and tombs. Now, I don't know what that means if it's made up, but the one about me being in this physical plane and moving on really, and I've always been fascinated with Egypt, but kind of really connected to me. What do you feel about the legitimacy of all that? Well, you know, people have ways of knowing, you know, that and and feeling your energy when they're with you. And and some are very good and some are not, (laughs) you know. But I think if you feel intuitively a connection to that, uh, then it's important and could well be true. And I think we do um, that life does that. We live uh, in different dimensions of being. And then we go into other dimensions of being, other levels of being. She could certainly have sensed that. She could very well be right. And and it's something really for you to think about and reflect on, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. It always stuck with me. I thought that was just fascinating. Well, the fact that it stuck with you, you know, it's a, yeah. yeah, I think it's so important to intuitively we we can feel whether something is is correct or not eventually uh, but it's just so important to be open to the vastness of our creativity you know we we do so reduce ourselves and yet something pretty vast is going on and the fact that you lived there was a reason and a purpose for it mm. and that changed you i'm sure you know so many people just go on living and then it's over but i mean to really kind of start being aware of something something is really taking place here and I have work to do and and it yeah. has uh it has a meaning and and a structure to it yeah yeah well uh it's so profound and I'm always trying to find the connection to that other thing that's bigger than me that's exactly our nature we should do that that's yeah. good you're you're on the path for sure <laughs> <laughs> So I have one more question, and this is a question I ask everybody, every guest, because uh, the show is called What's Normal, and we, we're talking about what's normal to each and every one of us, because all of our normals are different because we're all human, and as our humanness is just our differences. And I obviously found a, such a great, strong connection to what you wrote about in your books and in the video, and your connection to the energy around you, and I'm just fascinated, obviously, and best fascinated by the whole thing. So when I ask this question to everybody, I try to find the essence of you. My question to you is, what does normal mean to you? Well, of course, we all have our so-called normal patterns we fall into in our daily life. But I think all my life has been a desire to step out of the the known mm. and to step out of the pattern that may not be as creative as it could be and to try to find more creative uh, spaces, which will be the norm for a while, <laughs> you know. But I, I think 
that my norm and your norm <laughs> is always breaking the norm, stepping outside of it and finding something beyond that, because that's the nature of all of our creativity is to go beyond what we now know, because the universe is vast and infinite. So we might live comfortably a little while in a norm, but always within that norm, there's that desire to break out of it, you know, yeah. and become something more. Finding ways to break the norm and step outside mm -hmm. of it. That is such a, a wild, cool, wonderful answer. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much, Dr. Betty Kovacs, for your time. It's been almost two hours. We've had such a great time. Fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. And I want to thank you so much. Oh, has it been that long? <laughs> well, I am so honored that you read so deeply both books. I, I, I am grateful for your questions and simply here with gratitude. <laughs> well, I've connected to, to your words, to what you've written and, and the video, to everything you have so deeply and, and profoundly. So I want to thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I mean, for, you know, we can yeah. write things, but there is, if there isn't someone to perceive them as you, then <laughs> it's all for naught, as they might say. So I am so grateful for you receiving them in that way and grateful to be on your show and to know you, uh, to meet you. Thank you. Such a pleasure. Great pleasure to meet you as well. Bye. Bye. That was such a deep and wild conversation I had with Dr. Betty Kovacs. Do you think? I am truly honored to have her on my podcast and I'm so very grateful and thankful for her time and sharing with me her vast knowledge and wisdom. It was like I was essentially getting my own private history lesson, and now it's been shared with you. Her normal has always been trying to find ways to break out of the norm, step outside of it, and find something beyond that, because that is the nature of all of our creativity. Isn't that really cool? That's a beautiful way to live, I feel. I hope you got something out of our talk and some of the topics we mentioned. Feel free to comment or send me questions via the links on the description page of the episode, and please leave a review. You may again also find many links to Dr. Kovacs, the Camlex Center, her books, and a whole lot more on the description page as well. Just enjoy life, and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.